Welcome to Yale Cancer Center Answers with Drs. Susan Higgins, Anish Chagpar, and Stephen Gore. I'm Bruce Barber. Yale Cancer Center Answers is our way of providing you with the most up-to-date information on cancer care every Sunday evening on WNPR. The doctors welcome some of the nation's leading oncologists and cancer specialists who are at the forefront of the battle to fight cancer. If you'd like to join the conversation, you can contact the doctors directly. The address is canceranswers at yale.edu. And if you're interested in listening to past editions, all of the shows are posted on the Yale Cancer Center website at yalecancercenter.org. This week, Dr. Anise Chagpar will be speaking with Dr. Melinda Irwin. Dr. Chagpar is Associate Professor of Surgical Oncology and Director of the Breast Center at Smilo Cancer Hospital. Dr. Irwin is Professor of Epidemiology and Chronic Diseases, Associate Director of Population Sciences at Yale Cancer Center, and Deputy Director of Public Health for the Yale Center for Clinical Investigation. Here's Dr. Anish Chagpar. So, you know, we talk a lot about cancer, especially on this show, and, and it's really a disease that no one wants to get. So talk a little bit about what we can do to prevent ourselves from getting cancer, aside from the usual things like don't smoke. Well, uh, in fact, smoking and obesity are the two factors that are um, the largest uh, factors related to cancer mortality that are preventable or modifiable is the term we used. And for many years, smoking has been the primary or the leading cause, uh, modifiable cause of, of cancer mortality. But now, unfortunately, obesity has overtaken smoking. Hmm. Uh, and a lot of this is because of changes in our food environment, um, as well as improvements in treatment that um, may be back in the day, women going undergoing breast cancer treatment, for example, may have lost weight because some of the treatments, but now that our treatments are improving and we have medications to offset nausea and whatnot, women aren't really losing weight related to treatment, but in turn might be gaining weight for a number of reasons, maybe going into um, menopause and then that changes um you know, their metabolism and whatnot. But so right now, the the best way to really prevent cancer is um, related to some of our lifestyle factors, um, being aware of what we eat, our physical activity level, and, it, and with that, decreasing our sedentary activity level. These um, diet-related and exercise-related factors might explain up to 30% of our risk of developing over 13 cancers. Wow. So, you know, all of us have seen those maps of the United States that go back, I don't know, to the 1960s, and they show the the number of states that have normal weight and uh, overweight and obese, and the 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 map keeps getting worse and worse and worse. So, what percentage of the U.S. population is overweight? And having said that, are we finding that cancer rates are increasing if obesity is related to cancer? Such great questions. So those obesity maps you're referring to put out from the Centers for Disease uh, for Control and Prevention um, really in the 1980s showed about 15% of Americans had a BMI of 30 or more defined as obesity. But, so wait a minute. What's BMI? Just so that everybody knows this. And how do you calculate that? Right. So BMI is body mass index. And it's actually weight adjusted for height. And so you can take your weight in kilograms and then divide it by your height in meters squared. That's complicated. So you can just Google BMI calculator yeah. and it'll pull it up and you can put in your weight in pounds and your height in inches. Figure it out. So if your BMI is 30 or greater, that is defined as um, 
obesity. And so what these obesity maps have shown is back about 20 years ago, maybe 15% of the population had a BMI of 30 or more. But currently today, one in three, about 30 33%, 35% have a BMI of 30 or greater. And it's projected in the next 10 to 20 years, it'll be 50% of mm-hmm. the population has a BMI of 30 or greater. And a lot of this has to do with changes, as I just mentioned, in our food environment, changes in technolo- technology that has created a more sedentary um, lifestyle for many. And when experts have looked at this, it's really come down to just about 200 calories a day that is causing this, over many years, increase in BMI. And that's very feasible to think about how our energy expenditure, for example, how much um, movement we do, physical activity, um, has decreased by about 200 calories a day because of sitting more, because we can do a lot more via email and online. A lot of people are on social media a lot more now, yet they say one of their biggest barriers to being physically active is that they don't have time, yet they're spending a lot of time on social media. Um, So that, as well as a lot in our food environment, if you walk into a grocery store today, it's vastly different than it was 20 or 30 years ago. There's a lot more foods that are making it quicker and easier to cook. But with those foods, um, some of them might be processed or have a high sugar intake um, that is changing the amount of calories that we we take in or the quality of our diet. And so this has led to a change in BMI over time for the the worse. So there's many things we can do to sort of um, reverse this trend or stop it um, because we know that um, obesity is not only related to cancer but also cardiovascular disease and diabetes and whatnot. And cardiovascular disease is also um, a primary cause or one of the top leading causes of mortality after, for example, a breast cancer diagnosis. So, you know, there's a lot we have to do. If we think about when a, a woman, for example, with breast cancer is diagnosed, we should have a part of our cancer care when she sees a surgeon and then the oncologist. Um, she could also maybe see a registered dietitian and a physical therapist and whatnot so that right at the start, the whole patient is being treated in regards to taking care of not only her cancer, but other comorbidities that go along with it. With cardiovascular disease, for example, we've had cardiac rehab programs that are either reimbursed via Medicare and other um, health care um, ways, but we don't have like sort of a cancer rehab program. Um, And that's hopefully where we're going. So it sounds like, though, while that's a great idea, and we're going to unpack that in just a minute, it sounds like a lot of the work that can be done in terms of preventing people from getting cancer in the first place would be to reverse the obesity maps that we've seen over the last 20 or 30 years. Yes. And so we can also learn a lot from the efforts in smoking uh, cessation efforts. So there's been a lot of policy changes with tobacco control regarding, you know, in restaurants or in public settings and smoking. And so what can we learn from what has been um uh, beneficial with, with tobacco control and apply that to sort of preventing or treating obesity, um, what policy changes can be made. There's a lot going on regarding sort of primary prevention of obesity. In 2013, the American Medical Association defined, uh, defined obesity as a disease. And with that, um, general practitioners or primary care physicians can um, treat obesity in their clinics um, about so many 12 to 18 sessions over 
over a year, and that can be reimbursed. Unfortunately, where it falls short is it's the primary care docs who have to deliver this, and they don't necessarily have the best training in sort of nutrition and exercise and weight management. Um, a goal here at Yale is that we develop a, um, an obesity um, medicine fellowship program to train the next generation of clinicians on doing this, um, as well as having a, a comprehensive weight management program um, to treat uh, obesity. And so we can take that from a primary care setting, and hopefully not only will it improve or lower rates for cardiovascular disease and diabetes, but also prevent a number of cancers associated with obesity. You know, when you started mentioning primary care doctors treating obesity, I was hoping that we would be able to go to our primary care doc and say, okay, where's the pill, um, and be treated that way. But then as you were talking more, it sounds like this is much more about really changing your lifestyle, mm -hmm. uh, what you eat, how often you move, what you do. Uh, rather than simply a, a magic bullet, because I think a lot of us are waiting for the magic bullet. Well, if you think about a pill for a certain um, disease, it targets a particular pathway, usually one pathway. But when you think about exercise and healthy eating and weight management, there are a number of different pathways that are targeted. So it's difficult to think of how to develop a pill that would target multiple different signaling pathways. Um, the benefits of exercise and healthy eating aren't just, you know, say through the insulin pathway, but there are a number of different pathways, as well as effects on mental health, depression, anxiety, and stress, um, and then all the other comorbidities such as cardiovascular disease and diabetes. So really, you know, the best pill um, exercising and eating healthy and kind of trying to maintain or, or prevent weight gain over time is what we have to do. And while it's difficult to say, change your lifestyle to try to increase your activity or decrease your sedentary time or try to eat a, a better diet, um, there are approaches to doing this and working with sort of a registered dietitian or a, an exercise trainer can help you um, look at it step by step. But it sounds really hard, right? I mean, we just went through the whole 20 or 30 years of, you know, the grocery stores have changed and there's much more processed food that make things faster and easier. We've become more sedentary. We are working at computers more. We don't need to walk down the hallway. We can email somebody. There's a lot of things that have changed. And so it seems that it would be difficult to kind of turn that back and adopt these healthier lifestyles. And so if it's been so easy to gain obesity on that map, how easy is it to turn back? How easy is it to prevent? Like we all get the fact that this is really a good thing, right? We can prevent cancers and so on, become healthier, prevent heart disease. But it seems to me that we've we've known that for a while, and yet we continue to become more and more obese. Mm -hmm. Yes, yeah, so it's going to take a collective effort. Um, it, has, it involves the individual wine to make the change, but also an effort in our work environments. For example, um, employers could support um, exercise, for example, by having um, facilities available and, say, reimbursing their um, or, you know, or, or supplementing costs associated to their health insurance plan or their 401k, sort of rewarding them for exercising, um, it, you know, having that involved having numerous um, environments, you know, and 
such as we mentioned, the primary care docs involved. So it's going to take a large collective effort. But it also shouldn't be an overwhelming message. You don't have to train for a marathon. You know, the current recommended amount of exercise is two and a half hours per week of a moderate intensity activity, such as brisk walking. But that doesn't require going to a gym, say, three times per week and paying a gym membership. You just really requires a good pair of walking shoes and a safe neighborhood to walk in. So we have to work with our built environment experts. Here in New Haven, there's been a large effort on creating bike lanes um, throughout the streets of New Haven, which is wonderful. I know through the Yale um, Hospital and the Yale Medical School, there are maps of like one-mile walking routes all within sight, so you can't have poor weather be an excuse to not exercise. So it does take a collective effort and a personal effort to want to create this change, but it doesn't have to be much. It could be, you know, that 200 calorie deficit, which um, or, or deficit in our exercise or an increase in our eating that led to these changes. So if you think about 200 calories a day, whether that be 100 from increasing exercise and 100 from changing your diet, it's it's not overwhelming when you think of it from that approach. And we have to take the long look at this lifestyle change rather than a quick fix, a quick diet to lose, you know, 10, 20 pounds in the next month or two. And so oftentimes when I give presentations on our research and I meet with study participants or patients, we talk about preventing weight gain because, you know, losing significant weight can be overwhelming to them. But preventing weight gain and then ideally a 3 to 5% weight loss has been shown to be clinically meaningful in regards to number of metabolic and inflammatory biomarkers related to cancer and cardiovascular disease. So preventing weight gain, decreasing sedentary time, um, then increasing exercise, and then ideally maybe a, a 3 to 5% weight loss. That's sort of the end game. That has to occur over you know, the long term with lifestyle changes rather than a, a, you know, a, a diet quick yeah. fix in the next month. Yeah. You know, as you were talking about all of these changes and, and you know, engaging, you know, the built environment, bike lanes, healthier grocery stores, you start wondering about the impact that all of this has on disparities and, and the differences we see in African-American communities and Caucasian communities, poor communities and rich communities, and whether all of this could build into the outcomes that we see between these populations, that it might be that part of this is related to obesity. We're going to get your opinion on that and learn a whole bunch more about your research in terms of how preventing weight gain and potentially losing weight can actually have a beneficial impact for cancer patients and cancer survivors. We'll be right back after this Medical Minute. There are over 13 million cancer survivors in the U.S. and over 100,000 here in Connecticut. Completing treatment for cancer is a very exciting milestone, but cancer and its treatment can be a life-changing experience. Following treatment, the return to normal activities and relationships may be difficult, and cancer survivors may face other long-term side effects of cancer, including heart problems, osteoporosis, fertility issues, and an increased risk of second cancers. Resources for cancer survivors are available at federally designated comprehensive cancer centers, such as the one at Yale Cancer Center and at Smilo Cancer Hospital, to keep cancer survivors well and focused on healthy living. More information is available at YaleCancerCenter.org. You're listening to WNPR, Connecticut's public media source for news and ideas. 
Welcome back to Yale Cancer Center Answers. This is Dr. Anish Chagpar, and I'm joined tonight by my guest, Dr. Melinda Irwin. We're talking about diet, exercise, cancer prevention, and control, and how small differences can really make an impact, not only in the general population, but also in cancer patients. So right before the break, Melinda, I was hypothesizing that the differences that we see in terms of obesity rates may actually impact differences that we see in cancer incidence and mortality rates in different populations based on socioeconomic status, race, or other things. Can you comment on that? Yeah. So, you know, lifestyle behaviors is a very complex area to study. That's why I'm fascinated with looking at these behaviors that are modifiable. There are upstream and downstream factors that cause um, these adverse behavior changes that then affect disease. Uh, So when you think about the very upstream factors, it might all come down to education and and then other socioeconomic factors that then lead to personal factors with the way our lifestyle is and then more downstream to you know, um, certain diseases. And so when you look at sort of different educational and socioeconomic factors that cause um, changes or, or poor eating habits or exercise, we really then have to think, as I mentioned earlier, about the collective um, in entities, stakeholders to really make these changes um, that are really important, especially in underserved communities and what needs to be done there to improve um, these lifestyle behaviors. Right. So safe neighborhoods, food deserts, and so on. And that's really important for all of our public officials, our community uh, to really think about because this really does have an impact for cancer patients. Um, So tell us a little bit more about the work that you've been doing to study the impact of obesity in cancer patients and, and whether, in fact, we can make a difference in terms of longevity and survival. So for about 20 years now, I've been studying the role of exercise and weight in regards to cancer prevention and control. I come about this from a population perspective. I'm an epidemiologist, which looks on a larger scale, you know, on a population level, how these behaviors affect cancer risk and um, prognosis. And so my earlier research was really targeting the role of physical activity in preventing and treating breast cancer in particular. And there's been some really exciting findings um, from observational studies showing that in women with breast cancer, those who exercised, um, such as just brisk walking, had lower rates of recurrence and mortality than women who didn't. And we also further showed that those who increased their exercise after a diagnosis, so maybe they were not exercising before their diagnosis but became active afterwards, had also a lower risk of recurrence and mortality than if they had stayed inactive. Those were observational studies. So I then took those findings and wanted to see, well, what were the mechanisms? How was it that exercise was lowering risk of recurrence and mortality? And so we did some randomized controlled trials where we took, in this case, women with breast cancer who weren't exercising. They had finished their chemotherapy and radiation, and we randomized them to either uh, a year-long exercise program or a usual care group. And we collected blood and some other measures to look at changes in um, markers we know measured in the blood that are related to breast cancer, such as insulin and other inflammatory markers such as C-reactive protein. And we showed that these markers changed with exercise, and that was 
really encouraging because we know that if insulin levels decrease, then your risk of, of recurrence or mortality improves for, for not only breast cancer, but colorectal cancer and other cancers as well. We then moved in the last five to 10 years to looking, what about exercise plus healthy eating, which those together lead to weight loss or prevention of weight gain. And so we did a study called the LEAN trial, which showed um, diet-induced weight loss with exercise, also in breast cancer patients in the post-treatment setting, improved these biomarkers measured in the blood. And this is really exciting research. We've also measured some other um, downstream markers, such as collecting breast tissue from biopsies, and to look at some of these downstream markers, if they also change with weight loss. We're doing those analyses now and looking at KI-67 as a cell proliferation marker to see if weight loss or exercise slows cell proliferation, which could be a very good thing for for cancer. Um, We've also collected stool samples to look at the gut microbiome. There's a lot of research right now on the microbiome and how that can be related to to cancer. And so we're going to look at that and how exercise and weight loss influences that. But what's really exciting now is a new study that we're about to start that is taking our um, exercise and healthy eating weight management program into the first year right after diagnosis. So all the research to date that I've done as well as many others in the field have really looked at the role of lifestyles after treatment. So about two to three years after a diagnosis. And the patients at this time, when they're first learning about the benefits of you know, preventing weight gain, weight loss, and exercise, they're sort of s- stunned to hear the associations, and they wish they'd sort of heard this information earlier. So we're going to take the research we've done and implement it in the breast clinic in women newly diagnosed with breast cancer. So with the help of you and other breast surgeons and a lot of the breast oncologists, we're going to, um, after their uh, surgery um, for lumpectomy or mastectomy, they'll then be enrolled into our trial of really preventing weight gain, increasing exercise, um, and healthy eating. And this is what's really exciting about the trial. The primary endpoints of this trial will be to look at chemotherapy completion rate, adherence to endocrine therapy such as aromatase inhibitors and tamoxifen, and then also the changes measured in the blood and in the um, gut microbiome, as well as quality of life, which is so important to look at. And so what we're hopeful to find is that these um, lifestyle behaviors improve adherence to the critical treatments necessary for improving recurrence and mortality rates, as well as improving their quality of life. Um, so that'll be occurring over the next couple of years, and we we hope to share those results with you in a couple of years. So, so that sounds really exciting, and I'm sure that there are a lot of people out there who are thinking, wow, um, I'd really love to be in that trial if ever I got breast cancer. Tell us who is eligible. Can people with you know, we now talk about precancers or DCIS. Uh, we talk about true invasive cancers. Um, are you looking at the whole spectrum? Uh, are these people who have to be having chemotherapy, for example, uh, if chemotherapy adherence is an endpoint? Who exactly is eligible? Yeah, great question. So, um, you know, this study is a collective effort of a number of colleagues involved. So Dr. Tara Samft, who's a breast medical oncologist um, at SMILE, is also co-leading this project with me. You are also involved being the, you know, the head of the breast surgery program. Um, and there's a number of other 
clinicians and scientists involved. What we decide to do for this first trial is to focus on women with breast cancer who will be receiving chemotherapy because the research to date really shows that women receiving chemotherapy are the ones that have the most adverse changes in their lifestyle behaviors. They have the most decreases in physical activity after their diagnosis, as well as adverse changes in diet because of chemotherapy. And then um, that and changes in their menopause, either going from pre to post menopause. So this is still what we call an efficacy trial, even though we're implementing implementing it in the breast clinic. It's an efficacy trial where we want to really have a little bit more of control over who's enrolled um, so that our findings are, are more um, valid from an internal uh, perspective. And so it will be limited only to women who are receiving chemotherapy, not in the neoadjuvant setting because their treatment may occur over a longer period of time. So it's the um, adjuvant chemotherapy. It can be pre- and post-menopausal women and most important, it can be women with, an, with any BMI. It's not limited to women with a BMI of 30 or more because we know that we want to prevent weight gain. And actually, the women who gain the most weight after diagnosis is the women who have a healthy BMI, a BMI less than 25. And so we don't want to ignore that group of women thinking, oh, their, their BMI is fine because they might have adverse changes in diet and exercise, which causes them to maybe gain weight. So it'll be any BMI. But for this trial, they to be eligible, they can't already be exercising at high levels or eating a really healthy diet because we wouldn't expect to see much improvement. So it's a pretty broad eligibility. It is limited to stage 1 to 3C because those are the women who usually get chemotherapy, um, pre- and postmenopausal, and really just not practicing the healthy lifestyle behaviors. Yeah, which I anticipate will be a lot of people, given what we said before the break about how this, you know, obesity map has really changed and how many of us, me included, are not the necessarily the healthiest in terms of diet and exercise. So, Melinda, one question that I, I have, and I think many of our listeners may have, is, you know, when we think about people going through chemotherapy, we think about it being hard. And we think about people losing their hair and they can get nauseous and they don't, they don't necessarily feel great all the time. And then you're going to tell them to exercise. And then you're going to tell them to eat spinach and collard greens. And do you really think that people are going to do this? Well, we'll find out. And I have an amazing registered dietitian, Moore Harrigan, who has many, many years of experience working with cancer survivors, um, as I said, mostly in the post-treatment setting. So this will be really exciting for us to learn. We know from work that I've done and others that exercise is feasible during chemotherapy. We did a trial called the IMPACT study years ago, which was a telephone-based walking intervention. So um, they received a weekly phone call from our exercise trainer to increase walking during chemotherapy. As you know, chemotherapy is now delivered usually every two or three weeks. And so there's usually definitely one day that they can exercise and maybe that lingers to the day or two after. But then there's another 12 days that they can increase their exercise level. As far as the eating, that's you know great question of, of um, what they are going to want to eat. It's going to be sort of um, personalized, even though there are recommendations, um, you know, dietary guidelines of what is healthy eating, primarily plant-based diet, lower in sugars and saturated fats, um, limited alcohol intake. So we'll work with that framework, but then personalize it to the patient's preferences and side effects that they're having from chemotherapy. Um, we're very hopeful that this is something that the patients will um, 
find beneficial to them, not only in regards to um, treatment and side effects, but their overall quality of life. And the great thing is that this intervention is for how long now? So it'll be for their whole first year. So they'll ideally be enrolled, well, they'll have to be enrolled before initiating chemotherapy, and then they'll be followed for a whole year. And then we'll have an additional year after that to just follow them. So the intervention will be done, but we'll continue to follow them to see if they've maintained those behaviors over the following year. And that would be the really interesting and exciting part because certainly if if they do maintain that, um, then I think a lot of us who may not even have a cancer diagnosis may want to know what the secret sauce is about how we can uh, engage these healthy lifestyle behaviors and keep them going. Yeah, and I think what's important too is hopefully, you know, our results will show a benefit on the treatment adherence and the quality of life and the biomarkers related to recurrence and mortality so that in turn, you know, these programs are a part of our cancer treatment plan so that not only at Smilo Cancer Hospital but other hospitals around the country, when a patient comes in and sees the surgeon and the oncologist, they're also seeing the dietitian and the physical therapist, and it's all part of their treatment plan. And then while this study is specifically focused on breast cancer. As I said, there are many other cancers related to these lifestyle behaviors. So in the hope, in the future, the hope is that we'll also, um, you know, extend this to other cancers. And Melinda, can you tell us a little bit about any research that has really talked about whether diet and exercise impacts recurrence rate of cancer or survival? Because, I mean, we, we give drugs for this, but can we give diet or exercise as a as a potential therapeutic? So great question. So um, a new large study is just being initiated right now called the Be Well trial. It, again, is specific to women with breast cancer. But unlike the studies I just mentioned to you that, that we're doing, this one is a large trial, about 3,000 women with breast cancer recruited from around the country with the primary endpoint being recurrence in mortality. So, and really, it's a weight loss trial. And the goal is 5% weight loss. And does a 5% weight loss improve recurrence in mortality? And if so, so once again, that leads to hopefully the recruitment and reimbursement of these inter, uh, lifestyle behaviors in the clinic. Dr. Melinda Irwin is Professor of Epidemiology and Chronic Diseases, Associate Director of Population Sciences at Yale Cancer Center, and Deputy Director of Public Health for the Yale Center for Clinical Investigation. If you have questions, go to YaleCancerCenter.org, where you'll also find past episodes in audio and written form. I'm Bruce Barber, reminding you to tune in every Sunday night to learn more about the progress being made in the fight against cancer here on WNPR, Connecticut's public media source for news and ideas.